Welcome to Center Points, the podcast of the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. I'm Jonathan Nichols Patrick. I'm the director of the center, and my guest today is Jim Brown, professor emeritus of the IUPUI School of Journalism, where he also served as the dean. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, I wanted to talk a little bit today about the role of uh, journalism education mm-hmm. and what the challenges are, uh, what the what the future might hold, um, especially at a school like DePaul, where we don't have a journalism major, per se, and you come from a place where you had a school of journalism. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what the challenges are for journalism as a career itself, uh, as a profession, um, but also journalism as an educational pursuit. Sure. You know, the one thing that we all know about what's happening to the journalism business is it's, it's tanking. There's nothing wrong with journalism. What's failed is the business model of journalism. And not many people are finding their way out of the hole. So we've seen layoffs, early retirements, people not replaced. Um, Everybody is reducing the person power. And in doing so, they're not covering things as they once did. And one of the roles, particularly of newspapers, uh, to some extent broadcast stations as well, is being a watchdog, the, the fourth estate. After the executive, judicial, and legislative branches of government, um, there's sort of historically been a mission for a journalist to look at what uh, local, state, and national governments do, try and find things that are not right and expose them and uh, hopefully ultimately get them corrected. And the whole history of investigative reporting is rich with uh, excellent examples of how journalists have really helped correct wrongs. Well, there's fewer people to do that. And so Uh, In the 1990s, I hosted the first national conference on computer-assisted reporting. And one of the speakers at one of the early conferences in the 90s, I think was uh, uh, the editor for the Dayton Daily News. And with regard to computer-assisted reporting, which is a relatively new technique in the 1990s, he said, the watchdog has a great new set of teeth, referring to a new reporting skill, computer analysis of data. And now I'd have to say, following up on his comment, the dog's gotten old and some of the teeth are rotten and it it fell out of of the mouth. And so the bite's not as strong. And even the big papers, the New York Times, Washington Post, have retrenched. There's not a lot, not the staff they once had, Overseas bureaus are now gone, relying over, now on overseas press agencies. So how does, uh, how does a school of journalism or um, uh, a, school, a liberal arts school like DePaul, who have many students interested in careers in journalism, uh, deal with a shrinking market? It's tough. Uh, you may be competing... Uh, for jobs with 
Pulitzer Prize winners who's been laid off for other papers. And more recently, the, some of the Pulitzer Prize winners that were announced this past weekend, uh, some of those people have already left journalism to go to public relations or other jobs because they can't they can't support their family with the, the current check they're getting from their news organization. So everybody that's left in the business is struggling to find a way to do their job. Journalism faculties, you know, I have to say there are still jobs in journalism, and, and, and particularly in the smaller market papers, because they seem to be doing economically a little bit better than the metro papers. The local, the smaller town papers have local businesses that know they need to advertise in the paper, and it's really advertising that has collapsed. And so the smaller market papers are doing a little bit better, which is typically where people start anyway in their career. The issue is when those young graduates go out to the smaller papers and begin to make their mark and begin to amass a portfolio that might get them uh, a job in a metro paper, will there be a job at a, at a metro paper? That's the big question mark for the future. I don't think it takes a degree in journalism to be successful uh, getting a job in journalism. In fact, journalism schools, their general degree requirements are heavily in the liberal arts and science. So we believe in uh, liberal arts type background uh, for our general degree requirements. Though I didn't coin this phrase, I've often uh, borrowed it. Um, I've always described the journalism undergraduate major as an applied liberal arts degree because our general degree requirements are all in the liberal arts and sciences. So one can certainly, with a strong background in a liberal arts school like DePaul and and with some internship experience, and a desire to pursue a job in journalism, there's no particular barrier there. In fact, some people have argued the best way to be a great journalist is to take a general liberal arts degree and maybe go to graduate school for a master's to get the, the tool skills you need to perform in, uh, as a journalist. The tool skills now uh, have broadened considerably. The day of the specialist is long gone. So papers like the Chicago Sun-Times, as one example, there are more, uh, laid off 100% of the photo staff, including a Pulitzer Prize winner. And uh, they thought it was sufficient now to simply hand reporters iPhones and have the reporters make pictures. Well, first of all, an iPhone, while a great device is not a modern Canon or Nikon, and uh, a reporter is a specialist in words, not pictures. And so they're they're simply saying uh, we don't need photojournalism anymore. Yes, it it seems to me to be really devaluing the the role of the photograph. It seems to be saying photographs are merely illustrations of the words that are out there, and it's just enough to have a picture. Um, you know, because iPhones to me would be the the source of the, the, the equipment of last resort, right? I don't have a camera, and I need this picture now. This will do. 
but you know the the power of photojournalism is undeniable when you see it done right that's right um and the equipment um people devote their lives trying to get timing right trying to anticipate behavior of people so they can get those great storytelling pictures at the same time the reporters are spending their career and energy trying to learn how to craft a story in words and the best journalism is a combination of words and pictures a combination of great words and great pictures make great journalism so now we have reporters with iPhones perhaps still writing great words but making substandard pictures this this brings up a real conundrum for me as you know someone running a, a center that is you know designed to teach students media skills um, because on the one hand in order to keep up with the other I mean the other educational organiz- or institutions that we're competing with um, and also to keep up with the field of journalism we're talking convergence all the time and so we're mm-hmm. talking about people who know how to do this video still you know the written word and they know how to do all these things at the same time are we in danger of devaluing all those things um, or are we maybe just being realistic and trying to train students to be better at all those things than maybe concurrent people who've had to kind of learn on the fly are you know i feel like we're in this real sort of sticky moment where we may be in this talk of convergence exacerbating a problem uh, i i think you're right there um i also know that entry level jobs uh are going to people who can do more than one thing even if one of those things is substandard in in some sense usually i i could probably count on the fingers of one hand the people in my career who can both photograph at a top national professional level and also write at a top level it's a different set of skills um tom abercrombie the, uh, the late tom abercrombie of the geographic was one who both wrote his geographic stories and photographed them that skill set is really rare so people usually are good in one or the other and um now the hope is if you're a reporter you can be better you can acquire better visual skills and can make what i call publishable pictures that tell a story perhaps not as well as a real photojournalist but can go along that route and and but now you know in the metro papers the real photojournalists are being when they go on in the field are being asked to tweet make a facebook post uh make a quick video and uh make a few really terrific st- still pictures that they've spent their career trying to figure it out of me. So uh, in a sense that makes your point when it, when you take a top photojournalist uh who's really good at making storytelling pictures and say well now put that camera down for a while make a tweet post something on Facebook for a while in the meantime you're not making pictures you're not looking for pictures and so um 
But that's what management wants them to do. Um, In order to keep costs down because they want to not have to send a team of people, a reporter and a photojournalist, to do this. And the cost is coming down, or the cost is being kept down because advertising rates are falling, advertisers are spreading their money, spending their money elsewhere, and hitting the news organizations in the pocketbook. And this is, uh, I've been around long enough to see this is exactly the same thing that happened to Life Magazine and its competitor Look, Look Magazine, which were large format weeklies in their heyday. And really, what made Life Magazine was what made me want to go into journalism, the picture essays in Life Magazine. I grew up looking at that magazine regularly and admiring the work and the photography in, that, in those magazines and wondering if I could do that sort of thing. Well, what happened about oh, circa 1971 or so, a full-page ad in Life magazine was pretty expensive, but the circulation was immense, reached most households in the U.S., and so it cost a lot of money to get a full-page ad. And the full-page ad was bigger than 8.5 by 11 because it was a larger format magazine. And um, all of a sudden, the ad agencies discovered television as a medium. And they, within a few months, really, pulled advertising from life and started putting it into television ads. And what happened was the profits in um, Life magazine had a very, very low subscription, per-issue subscription rate. Let's say it was a quarter. I don't remember exactly what it was. But let's say the cost of production was a dollar and a quarter. Well, the, so now you're, you're getting a quarter from the customer, and your cost is a dollar and a quarter. You've got to make up the difference plus your profit in advertising rates, and that's the way they did it. And when the advertisers, who are whimsical, suddenly discover television and pull out, your economic base just collapsed, and they couldn't persist. And they stopped publishing as a weekly, uh, or as a day, as a weekly. Then they tried to be monthly for a while, and then they tried being annual. And, you know, and and the same thing happened to look. Look was in the same situation. I think it lasted maybe a year longer. So uh, in, oh, I forgot what year it was, but the American Press Institute asked me to do a study on newspaper advertising. And that was something I I did not want to do. I'm a photographer. I don't want to study newspaper advertising. But uh, uh, Steve Ross from Columbia and I were, he and I were pressured to do something. And so we decided to collect advertising data from a number of newspapers who are members of the American Press Institute, and we were going to analyze that data. Well, out of, I don't know, maybe 80 to 100 requests from newspapers, only five, I'm sorry, only about 18 could produce data for five years. The rest of them, um, you know, in the in that day, uh, probably 15, 20 years ago, hard drives were expensive. So as new ads came in 
to the newspaper to make room for them, they rolled off the old ad data into the ether and deleted it. So the news, most newspapers did not have five years of historic data on what produced two-thirds of their profits. They just didn't care about maintaining that data and analyzing it. So in the day, about a third of the newspaper's profits came from uh, auto, real estate, and jobs. Those are the big three, about a third each. And that that comprised about two-thirds of the profit. Then comes Monster.com. Then comes... Uh, real estate uh, companies doing their own websites and advertising. Uh, then comes uh, all kinds of competition in the auto market. Uh, a lot of it web-based. And suddenly, the base collapsed. In the study we did, uh, we did regression analysis on a number of variables and uh, made a presentation in Washington and one of the newspapers, a very large newspaper in the southeastern United States, had a representative in the audience. And while we, uh, in our data and our presentation, we didn't use newspaper names, I did clue that person in um, that paper Z was his paper. And what was happening in that paper, if you looked at overall advertising revenue, was gradually going up. It wasn't a steep slope, but it was going up. And so everybody was happy. But then we began to analyze the data by sector, autos, jobs, real estate. One of those sectors was dramatically at a steep slope sinking, going to nothing. And they didn't know. They didn't. This is a big city metro. They did not know they were rapidly losing one of the triangle legs of their profit. So at the break, that newspaper guy ran to a telephone and called the office. Said, "Did you know?" <laughs> and they didn't. I'm amazed that the sales force wouldn't know, wouldn't wouldn't actually even have a sense of that. Well. Uh, who knows what the internal dynamics of the paper were? Maybe they were. Maybe they did know and were hiding it from upper management because they wanted to make themselves look like they were growing. Sure. Oh, who knows? But um, uh, following that, I decided to set up a database at IU and I, uh, with funding from the American Press Institute, since newspapers were not keeping historic data. I thought, well, IU can keep that data for them if they're not going to do it. And we'll let them upload their data on a quarterly basis. And uh, I will select comparable newspapers. I won't tell them who their competitors are, but I'll select comparable newspapers. And they can plot their data on a chart on the web and see how they're doing vis-a-vis comparison papers that I as a researcher selected. And I would have to do that because if you take, for example... A St. Louis paper and the East St. Louis paper, they're night and day. The, the, the Mississippi River separates them, but East St. Louis is in no way comparable to St. Louis. Yeah. On the other hand, the same Mississippi River separates the Minneapolis Tribune and the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And they're both uh, big papers, both you know uh, quality papers. And so 
that that's the kind uh, behind the scenes i would select comparison papers and we got that all programmed we got it all working had test data on it and about that time the person at american press institute that hired me to do this left and became an executive at a uh, newspaper chain and there was nobody left at the institution that had the interest he had and none of the papers wanted to provide the data and so that whole project just died uh, So, and the person that wanted me to do this study and I and all of our circle of friends uh, all say it's no wonder that the newspaper industry has tanked because uh, in a sense, the conclusion of our study back 15 years or so ago was that the newspaper business did not know their own business. Yeah, and I, I think <clears throat> I think in some ways an analogy can be drawn, and I think some some lessons can be learned. So I look at the television industry right now, and I see that the you know the net we talk about the networks dying, the the big major broadcast networks uh, in the face of cable, and basically cable's winning the game right now they became the big player and what i would argue is that the, the the broadcast networks are going to at some point have to realize that they're going to have to become cable networks they're going to have to drop their affiliates and they're going to have to become cable networks and play in that field um, and they're going to have to rethink programming and i almost wonder if the newspapers the major metro newspapers are going to have to realize that at some point they are going to be for better or for worse like all the other sites that are out there competing with them, the BuzzFeeds. I don't like to see that day coming. I think the, I think the analogy breaks down in that I think the Metro newspapers serve a much more profoundly important function than the broadcast networks do on a daily basis. But I think this idea of not knowing your business or being so big for so long makes you complacent um, and, 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 and forces a kind of inertia on your on your flexibility, and I'm almost because because the thing that the thing that confuses me every day is how do we let um, an institution like major metro journalism start to fail these papers how we how do we let them fail um, I think advertising money is the big is the big thing there, but um, well you also have take the case of Gannett. Gannett now on the Indianapolis Star. I think the Star has gone. Th- I can't. I've lost count of the number of retrenchments the Star has gone yeah. through, and yet Gannett executives make enormous salaries and bonuses. And so, uh, you've got the MBAs making the million dollar salaries, uh, and in order to give them bonuses, you've got to lay off uh, photojournalists and reporters. And so, again, so maybe the analogy there is what's happening on the local television affiliates where you've got um, private equity firms buying them up basically to flip them, tear them down, flip them. Mm -hmm. And their cultural function, their social function is not really in the mix at that level, at the higher level. It's certainly in the mix for the people who work there. Um, But what we're experiencing is a business model that's really about short-term return. Because... Uh, they are corporations, public corporations with stockholders. Yeah. And, the, and the responsibility is to the stockholders, not the town. Yeah. And that's the, the downside of 
corporate uh, acquisition of TV stations and newspapers. In the old days, when the newspapers were family-owned, the family was active in the community. The family, the newspaper served the community. Um, but when corporations take over those papers, now it's the short-term returns to stockholders, not the norm ter- long-term value to the community that's important. You're right. I mean, it's it's uh, we've seen what I think is a terrible change in our lifetime about... Uh, in, in terms of the watchdog function, investigative reporting, uh, serving the community, the two new beats at the Indianapolis Star, in their definition of the newsroom of the future, are beverages and parties. Beverages. Beverages. <laughs> like Michael. Well, I, I like a good beer like everybody yeah. else, but uh, I'm also old enough I don't care what parties are going on yeah, in town. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, but the audience is, they want those demographics that are going to pay the, the, ad- right. the advertisers want. But, and yet, but to return to something you said earlier, journalism itself is alive and well. It's, it's the business of journalism that's suffering. That's exactly um, right. And so there are opportunities out there for, for young journalists, um, like we're trying to train here, like you've been training for years, and I'm trying to help train in this facility so what are, the, what are some of the tools that you think are available now that are exciting for new journalists? Well, the whole uh, conversion from wet chemistry and film to digital, uh, I've said this often, when I began to learn digital photography and digital nonlinear editing of video, I thought, I must, I must, have, he- I must have died and I'm in heaven now. Because it is so superior to the old technology, I and mean, it's really great. Uh, so that's one thing. We have uh, incredible software available to process still pictures and video. We have incredible software to process audio, mm-hmm. like this interview. Yeah. Um, and so now, and and. And much of it has been made accessible to most anybody with a modicum of learning. Uh, and so now you have the tools to create a product that your mind envisions relatively easily that did not exist. And I think it was Steve Jobs that really brought that to the front when he developed the iLife applications mm-hmm. that were automatically put on every Mac sold. iMovie, iDVD, iPhoto. They were all right there on every Mac. And anybody could use them easily and produce whatever the heck your mind came up with. A slideshow, a video, a DVD from the video. It was an incredible step forward. And so that's the wonderful thing. if you if you have an idea and you want to communicate in audio pictures or words uh, there there is no technologic barrier it there just isn't yeah that's a great that's a great way to end i think um because there's hope at the end of all of this we just need to rethink um where we want to go that's right well i thank you so much for talking to me you're welcome this has been a pleasure Glad to visit. I love DePaul. I love being here, and thank you for inviting me. 
Our guest today has been Jim Brown, Professor Emeritus at the IUPUI School of Journalism, where he also served as dean. This has been Center Points. Thanks for listening.